Good morning, beloved. All right. Well, you were asked uh, for the name tag question today, something to the effect of like, what is your comfort level with receiving a compliment? I saw quite a few zeros. Hey, that's all right. Um, did anyone get a negative number? That would have been me. Uh, but one of my friends actually, I, I was talking to him about his number and, and he was saying, you know, there's a difference in how I can like visually receive and verbally respond to a compliment and how I'm actually receiving that compliment inside. Um, and that is just so true. Um, I personally, if you have not met me, you probably know, um, if you have met me, that is, that I am terribly awkward. I'm just really bad at expressing emotion in different environments. Uh, so this week, uh, I was gifted a new MacBook after nine years. The old one still works. It's amazing, but it's really slow. But So I got this new laptop. I'm like, it's, it's been a long time coming. This is awesome. I'm excited. Um, but it's made me think back on uh, the first time that I got a Mac. Um, some of you are like, he said Mac, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. Please, I'm not casting stones any direction. Um, please don't throw them up here. But the first time I got a Mac, you know, they like big deal Apple, this, this company like blowing up. And so it's, it's an experience. Like they put a ton of research and development into just their packaging. And that was one of the most beautiful things about it. Just like, if you open the product and, and they were like the, the cutting edge. And so, so many companies now are trying to, to mimic what they do with just the packaging of a product. And so I remember uh, this was back in the days when you went to the actual Apple store and you bought your computer and you didn't just like walk out with it. They actually like plugged the bad boy in, took it out of the box, like all that stuff and set it up and helped you get things ready to go. You know, none of that stuff happens anymore. I think you have to pay extra for that kind of stuff. Um, but this was in those days. And so I'm there. And mind you, like, I'm terrible at pulling the trigger on a big, expensive purchase. And so this has been, like, months in the making. I'm ready to finally do this. I go there. Like, I have the resolve. Like, I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. And so I'm in there. And I see all these other people. Like, it's the big unpackaging. They plug it in. You know, that sound when it starts up. And, like, just, like, the excitement. It's just all this stuff is happening. And the guy who is tragically partnered with me to sell me this product. He's like taking it out and everything and I'm just sitting there and he keeps kind of looking at me funny and he like turns it on and all stuff. And finally he just stops what he's doing as he's like typing in information and stuff and he's like, are you okay? <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is, this is pretty normal for me. Like, I am excited. I, I am, but... I don't know. There's, there's just something about like expressing that and, and all that that I can struggle with at times. Uh, but do you know the tension of watching for someone else's response? Like maybe it's a good friend, uh, a child at Christmas, or a spouse on an anniversary, and like you got something that you're like, this is not like a for sure they're going to like this but I think they're going to like it. Like, I'm convinced that this is going to bring so much joy to them, um, but you know that moment of like you're watching for their response, their reaction as they unveil what it is, as they enter into what you have known has been hidden from them, and as they come to grips with this and it's revealed, how are they going to respond? And so, you know, like there's the, the great excitement of like, I hope that they're overjoyed for this, but then there's also this kind of nervousness, this unease of like, what if they don't? Like, how is that going to go if it's not the emotion that I want to be expressed? Or maybe it's not just in a gifting environment, but like, you know what it's like to encounter an emotion that seems oddly out of place in an environment. Like, this is supposed to be a joyful place. And wait, what is that? What's on your face right now? And so the collision of different emotions and what it is to be human is something that we all can resonate with. 
the tension of that, and so we need to carry that into the text today. We are continuing in our Luke series, um, wrapping it up, and so if you're familiar or not familiar, what we do is we start with Christmas, a new gospel each year, and kind of walk through that to Easter with the resurrection and then the ascension being Mission Sunday after that. And so we don't get the chance to cover everything as we normally do going through a book of the Bible, every verse, um, but we're gonna highlight some things. And so what we've been doing in the Gospel according to Luke is we're looking at this idea of certainty that Luke wrote to Theophilus and he said that he wanted him to have a certainty about the things in which he had been instructed. And so we want a certainty of who is Jesus. And so we're looking at who Jesus is, what he did, the miracles, his teachings, all these things. And here we are now, we're approaching Easter. And so this week, we're actually going to cover Palm Sunday, even though that will be um, globally celebrated next Sunday. Um, but because we don't have our own gathering space, we will not be able to have a Good Friday service. So next week, we'll actually cover Good Friday, and then we'll be on track for Easter on Easter Sunday. So this week, looking at Palm Sunday, we carry this tension of weird emotions being encountered. So we're in Luke chapter 19. If you want to make your copy of Scripture ready, Luke chapter 19. <coughs> Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up in verse 28. Um, if you have headings in your copy of scripture, it likely says above that, the triumphal entry, something to that effect. And so Luke chapter 19, verse 28. It says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And so we need some context here. Who is this? This is referring to Jesus. Jesus had just said some more things. He's actually just given a parable um, that's largely about some end times things. And so he's given a parable and now he's going on up ahead and he's approaching Jerusalem. He is headed to Jerusalem. And so if you have been doing the Bible reading plan as a church with us um, through the entire gospel of Luke, then you know at this point that this has been kind of the trajectory for a few chapters now. He's, he's kind of pointedly shifted. I'm going to Jerusalem. He's headed there. This is an intentional move, but now it becomes even more blatant. He is going up to Jerusalem. Up is actually also in altitude. Um, Jerusalem is on, on a series of mountains, and so you would actually, this is why we have the Psalms of Ascent, that they actually, many of the Psalms are written, they're things to be prayed and sung as you're ascending the mountain, Mount Zion. You're going up in altitude, up in elevation, approaching Jerusalem. So he's going up to Jerusalem. So here we are with context, Luke's story arc, they're approaching Jerusalem. So everyone reading along now knows like something climactic is going to have to happen in Jerusalem. Like a lot of stuff has been building up to this moment. He's going to the capital, if it were. This is kind of the epicenter of religious thought and identity. So going to Jerusalem, verse 29, he, as he approached Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied on, tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. All right. <laughs> so Jesus gives some of his disciples some instructions. Hey, I want you to go ahead. You're gonna find a donkey tied up. I want you to untie it, bring it to me. If anyone gives you grief about it, just say, the Lord needs it. Okay. <laughs> like, like I'm potentially gonna get arrested for robbing someone, but if I just say, the Lord needs it, then it'll all be good. And they're like, okay, we, like, we've seen things. We've seen things. We believe you. So we're gonna go do that. And so they head off to go get this. Um, we, have to, we have to wonder though, as they find this, like, did Jesus have, because he is truly fully man and fully God, is this in his omniscience? Like he knew exactly where this donkey would be and how people would respond to this. Like was this some kind of foreknowledge? Like God, man, Jesus, knowing all things, or was this Jesus had possibly arranged this? But he had talked to some people and said, like, hey, there's gonna come a point at which I'm gonna need that donkey. 
and just be cool with it. I'll, I'll tell them to say like, the Lord needs it and you'll know what I mean. We don't know, but either one is fine. What we do know is that this is very intentional. Jesus is intentionally arranging something to happen here. And so this goes back into the Old Testament. Um, one of the prophets, Zechariah, actually prophesied something in chapter nine, verse nine. This is what it says. And so you gotta understand, this is what Jesus is arranging here. He's orchestrating this to come about. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, meaning Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. And so Jesus is intentionally setting the stage to fulfill this prophecy, that the king is coming into the city, he's coming to Zion, he's coming to Jerusalem, he's approaching, and he's coming on a donkey. And so Jesus sets this up so that everyone would know this is what is happening right now. And so the disciples hearing this, wait, like we've heard this language of you as king and stuff and like we all, all this messianic hope of a king is coming who's gonna be from the, the lineage of David, like the son of man, he's coming, he's going to oust all the other things, like his kingdom will endure forever. And so they're thinking the Roman empire is occupying Jerusalem. Someone's got to get them out of here. Like if we're gonna rise back to power and the king is going to be on a throne forever, and we've seen you do these miracles, then they're all thinking, this is what's happening. This is the moment. Jesus is coming in and he's going to take charge. This is gonna be a coup. He's gonna rise to power. We're all gonna rally around. This is the epics. This is the fulfillment of all the promises that we're gonna be restored. This is gonna be beautiful. He's going to make everything right again. This is a beautiful, happy moment. The king is coming in. We get the privilege of going to get the donkey that Zechariah prophesied about. We know that prophecy. We heard about it all the time as kids. And so now we get to go be part of that. We're gonna bring a donkey, put the king on the donkey and ride into the city. This is going to be amazing. And then verse 32. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? This is, you know, the, oh, is it gonna work? <laughs> and so they say, the Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. Apparently it worked. <laughs> then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. The donkey has been secured. And so again, you've got to enter the context. All these Jews would know this prophecy. They would be watching this play out. The donkey, the king, we're coming to Jerusalem, we're coming to the capital. This is all happening. It's happening, guys. It is finally happening. We've been watching and listening to all the things he has said and done. We know he has the power. No one can stand against him. This is amazing. It's finally happening. Jews, brothers and sisters, we're going to be free. And not only are we gonna be free, we're gonna be restored back to a place of prominence. Our king, the king of kings, he will reign over everything with an iron scepter. This is going to be amazing. And so they come in, and so what are they doing? They're taking their clothes off. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with anxiety, but like clothes in that culture, like that is one of your highest signs of investment and wealth. And so one of the most valuable things you can have is what you're wearing. And they're taking it off and throwing it on this donkey that's probably full of fleas and everything else you can imagine. Make a saddle for the king. I'll gladly give you my coat. Make a saddle for the king. He's coming in. And others are like, oh, better than that. Let me make a road. Throwing their clothes down to make a robe. Like, you know, the whole red carpet treatment. 
that stars get to walk down the red carpet and like when presidents and people of prominence come out of their helicopters and different things, often there's, there's a formal walkway because it's to show and signify like we honor you, we elevate you, something like that. And so that's happening here, that they're throwing their clothes down to make a special road for Jesus to walk through with a donkey. And you gotta know like that donkey isn't exactly potty trained. Like there's a good chance my clothes are gonna catch things, but it's worth it because the king is coming. And this is actually an allusion back, like what would be going through their minds is in 2 Kings, um, this is um, blanking out chapter nine. 2 Kings chapter nine, this is when Elisha, one of the prophets, anointed Jehu, who's a new king, and he anoints Jehu, and this is a time when Israel as a nation had really wandered away from the, the covenant. And so there's all kinds of idolatrous stuff happening. And so Jehu comes, and he's anointed by Elisha, and as he becomes the anointed king, he launches into a campaign of getting rid of everything that stands against God. He falls short of it, but it's, he's one of the kind of like high marks of like, he did a good job of taking care of so much of the worship of false gods. He had Jezebel thrown down and killed, like all kinds of things that were, if you know the scriptures, you know the Old Testament, like that was a good thing. That was a king who clearly was anointed and took care of business. And so again, you piece that together with what they're thinking in this moment. As Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he says, go get the donkey. You remember Zechariah 9? Yeah, I'm coming in. And so now they're like, throw my clothes off, make a saddle for him, make a roadway. Just like when Jehu was anointed as king, you know what they did? They took their clothes off and covered the steps. And so they're trying to do the very same thing, thinking he's gonna be like Jehu, but he's gonna go all the way. He's gonna go take care of all the evil, everything that's in opposition of us. He is going to take care of business. This is amazing, like great rejoicing. Here comes victory, it is certain. Jesus is the king, he's coming into town. Like the excitement of Palm Sunday is amazing. Like fever pitch, everyone is excited, happy, joyful, this is good news. The king is coming finally to make things right. This has come, verse 37. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. So what do you do when you're excited? You raise your voice. Go to the game, your favorite team, and they start doing well. What do you do? The volume comes up and we start encouraging. We start praising things. And so they break out in praise. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. They're singing. They're shouting. They're worshiping, they're praising Jesus, the coming king, he's coming in. This is our salvation. Jesus has come and they're excited for it. They love it, this public praise, the crescendo of the excitement. And what is the cause for joy and praise? It says, because all the miracles that they had seen. And so all of what Jesus had done in power is actually validating his claims. He is the Messiah, he is the king, he has come. They believe it and they're excited for it. They're welcoming him in at cost to themselves and now humbly praising him and worship. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. <laughs> rebuke, what? 
Everyone's excited, like throwing their clothes down, singing, praising him. Like Matthew's version tells us that they had the palm branches. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And so all this excitement, like the king is coming in. We're welcoming him into the capital. Salvation has come. This is amazing. The best thing that could ever happen is happening before our very eyes. The king is coming. We're excited, all of that. And yet here are some Pharisees who slip out of the crowd, get in the way of Jesus. You imagine him coming on this donkey and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa teacher. And so they've minimized him. Now it's just teacher. It's not king. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is absurd. This is blasphemous. Do you hear them? This is so inappropriate. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus defends them. There's no, no, that excitement, that's real. Because this is real. And you know what? If I were to tell them to be quiet, if they were quiet, the rocks around here would start screaming my praise. Like how amazing is that? Like that is our God, the God of the cosmos, the God of all creation, who through him all things were created, by him all things created, and for him. That if we, as his beloved, stopped singing his praises, the concrete we're standing on would start singing. He will be praised. He will receive his glory. He will be glorified. His name will be hallowed, even if there is some contesting it like these Pharisees. He's saying, hey, with certainty, you can know I am the king. So beloved, you can know with certainty Jesus is the king. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He is the true and greater Jehu. He is the one who has come to save us. He is king of kings. There is no one like him. Salvation is sure. He is coming to procure our salvation. And so be excited about that. The king is coming. We should rejoice. We should be screaming with the crowds, throwing our clothes down, giving him everything we have. You are worth it. You are coming. He's here. Even as some stand here as trouble and opposition are present. But ultimately, there are already some rejecting him. And this is a, a window into what is to come. There's a picture here. As we continue, verse 41 says, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. But do you feel it? As all the disciples are there, and Jesus himself has intentionally sought out to make an environment where everyone would know exactly what is happening, the king is coming. Salvation is coming. It is sure he is the king. And if you won't praise him, the rocks will praise him. It is certain and in this moment, that should be the most joyous day of Jesus' earthly life, as he is most publicly praised. Like there is not a day like this recorded in the Gospels where thousands upon thousands are just outright praising and worshiping the rightful king. And so on the day of his greatest praise, what is Jesus doing? He is crying. Can you imagine our Savior on a donkey? humbly riding into a city as people are waving palm branches, throwing them down, throwing their clothes on the road. He's sitting on a saddle of other people's clothes and they're shouting his praises. And what do you expect to see? 
a massive smile. You get it. You're right, I'm coming. I've got you. But as he looks ahead and he sees the city of Jerusalem, tears well up. Tears well up in the king's eyes. As he looks out at all these people crying, he says, if you only knew what would bring peace. But you're going to be smashed to the ground along with your children. They're going to barricade you in. Not one stone will be left on another. Jesus is prophesying here because in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. That armies surrounded the city and mothers and fathers and children were decimated and the temple that they were so proud of was brought to level ground with not a stone left on another. Jesus cried on the day that he was most publicly praised. And you have to see that. If you want to join the crowd in rightly praising the king, you have to see why he would cry on this day. And you go back to verse 39. See, why would Jesus be crying? Like, that emotion seems so out of context. Don't you see what's going on here, Jesus? This is good for you. And yet he's crying. Why would he be crying? Verse 39, some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know what I think is the most pivotal word in that? Your. Not just that they lowered Jesus to the status of, you're just teacher. Like, we'll give you some respect. You've, you've proven. <laughs> you've proven over and over that you can, you can best us in argumentation. You know the scriptures better than we do. Are you just a teacher? That's not the most offensive thing in there. What breaks Jesus' heart is found in there. It's, teacher, rebuke your disciples. There's a distinction here. There's a division that they're drawing. This is at the heart of what it is to be a Pharisee, actually. They're making it clear that they are not his and he is not theirs. A Pharisee Uh, It's this Jewish group that comes from an Aramaic word that means to separate, to divide, or to distinguish. This is at the heart of who they were, a group that was about strict and extreme observance of the law. They knew how to behave. They were very good at it. They knew the laws, and they followed them religiously with their lives. They failed in that. Like every other human, they failed in that. And yet they would add on to the laws, their own strict interpretation, and they would add more and more. So it's like, hey, the line's here, so we're gonna make another line here so that you don't even get close to that line. It's like, you know what? Let's make another line here. Ah, You know what? You're still two steps away. Let's make another line here. And next thing you know, there's this massive yoke of requirement of what it is in strict observance of the law. That's not even the law anymore. It's all this other stuff. And every bit of it is behavior. It's this is what you must do. This is what they're convinced of, is that I can comply with that law. It's a form of self-righteousness. That I don't need you. Look at how good I am at this. I'm a Pharisee. I am so good at keeping the rules. Do you see my appearance, my behavior? Look at them. They would love to draw contrast of how holy and set apart they were compared to others. And here they are face to face with the king coming into the city to provide salvation that everyone, Pharisees included, so desperately needed. And they want to draw a distinction. Rebuke your disciples. We're not a part of this. 
We are not yours. You are not mine. This is the tragedy of this. This is the tragedy of all of our self-righteousness, that in our attempts to be good enough, we have separated ourselves from the king who is coming and who has come and is coming again. You're saying, I can do it on my own. And what does Jesus do? Tears come to his eyes. Why? If you only knew what would bring peace. And then we have to look, okay, here's a king coming who is heartbroken because he sees the rejection here. And so what does a king coming to a city do? If there's a king coming to a city and he's not currently recognized as the king of that city, what is that king gonna have to do? He's gonna have to take over that city. And so a king would come to a city and there would be terms of peace. I'm either going to decimate you, my army is going to utterly destroy you, and that may take some years of siege and we'll just starve you out, whatever it is, but you're going to suffer or you're going to accept my terms because I'm the king, I get to define the terms. A king has come to a city and so we must ask, what are the terms of this king? We have said, what would bring peace? What, what could lead to them avoiding what we know ultimately happened? What are the terms of peace? You look in verse 44. He's, he's perfectly saying, they will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. The first term of peace. We have to see God came offering peace but it was rejected. To reject peace, to reject the terms of peace, to reject the king who is bringing peace is to accept and invite judgment. Hell is real. Do you know that? We hate talking about that. But you get, on average, 78 years on this planet. And then there is eternity to come. And Jesus was constantly saying, like, yes, this life matters, but it only matters because it's going to affect all of eternity. So make it count. Know what actually matters today because it is absolutely going to impact forever. And you will wind up in one of two destinations. You will be at pure bliss, full perfection, enjoyment, where all things are made new in the presence of God himself as he delights in you and you delight in him. And he loves us. There's this overflowing fountain of love that has been always and forevermore between God the Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's inviting us into that forever with adventure and all the joys of heaven. It's not just like, oh, we're gonna sit there while angels play harps and it's gonna be really boring. Like, I think Reggie repeats the course too often. Like, no, this is gonna take forever. Like, no, this is the God of all adventure, the God of creation. He's creative. Like, he is going to invite us into everything that we could ever desire and more. The promises of God all find their yes in Jesus to be face-to-face, the beatific vision, to see God face-to-face. Do you know what that will be like? every yearning of our heart satisfied to ever, forever be joyfully with him or to reject him. It's to be cast out from his presence, to suffer forever. Jesus talked about hell a lot and it was always with clear, compassionate warning. You don't want this. It is the essence of God saying, like, have it your way and turning you over more and more and more. And we can see a microcosm of that in our own lives, that the more selfish we are, the more miserable we are. And yet it's a place of an unquenchable flame, of eternal torment. And you see God's heart in this. 
as he sees the city and he starts crying. So if you only knew what would bring peace. He warns them. Why? Because scripture is emphatic over and over. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He is long-suffering. He's patient. He's slow to return because he's, he's being patient, hoping that all would come to repentance. And yes, he is sovereign, but this is his heart. He wants the lost to be found. He wants the sinner to repent, to turn from their sin and trust him, not in self-righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus that he freely gives and says, will you believe in me? the one who covers our sin by being a sacrifice once and for all, his blood shed on a cross to be our atonement, to be our at one meant with God, to bring us back to a right relationship. And he says, look, turn from your sin. Stop relying on yourself and see that you cannot do it. Trust me, believe in me, follow after me. Believe he died and he rose again. But Jerusalem here is rejecting the terms of peace. They're rejecting the Prince of Peace. And you know the irony of that? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salem means peace. This city is literally the city of peace. The city of peace is rejecting the Prince of Peace and consequently is embracing wrath and judgment. Will you accept peace? If you will not, you will face wrath. Judgment is real. So surrender and submit. You cannot do it on your own. This is the term of peace. What do we do? Uh, I believe that. What do I do? King of peace? Like, how do I receive this peace? You surrender. You lay down your arms, city. You lay down your arms, individual. You stop fighting. You submit to the one who is truly Lord. You realize you cannot do it on your own. You could never do enough good. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. The king who has come is your only hope. So put your hope in him. Trust in him. Give up self-righteous attempts. Repent. Receive the grace and forgiveness of God. You need it so desperately. And then the next one in these terms of peace, is that we must be his. He's the king. That means he is sovereign. We submit and realize, now I belong to you. I am yours. We are the Lord's. I had a conversation with one of our leaders this morning who was telling me about the, the passing of a friend, and she finished that conversation with what is an explicit scripture, but also part of a common catechisms. She said, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are his. And we must admit that. We must believe that. We must give up and be his. Live for his glory and his kingdom, not our own. His kingdom. Because you know, God loves his glory. Like jealously so. Emphatically so. Fanatically so. He loves his glory. And he is right to. He is God. He cares an extreme amount about his glory. This is replete in scripture. Isaiah 42a, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. His glory is not to be shared. It is his. Isaiah 43, 6b-7, he says, bring my sons from far away, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. 
Or Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. He loves his glory. He will not share it. He will not compromise on it. Will you live for it? Will you live for the glory of God? And you're like, nah, it kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, I know God is like super loving and generous, sacrificial, like the cross, you know? Like, he's proven, like, that's his character. He's, he's, he's giving and all this stuff. And you're like, that, you, you start talking about God in like selfish terms, Kevin, here. This is weird. And you've got to see, they're actually beautifully working together. They're not at odds for God to love his glory and to love you. They work beautifully in tandem. Jesus is weeping here over Jerusalem. Why? He has come here on mission in compassion for Jerusalem. And yet, what's breaking his heart is they're rejecting him. So it's like, wait, what is it? Is it because you're upset about the wrath that's to come on them? Or is it because they're rejecting you and you're like, kind of like, oh, like, are you affected like that? Like, I thought you're perfect in and of yourself. You gotta see the beauty of this. He made us for his glory. He's not gonna give it away. We're saved for his glory. See how they're beautifully interwoven. He loves you and he loves his glory. So live for his glory. Let me put it like this. Um, in the words of John Piper, who is a longtime pastor, um, he wrote this once he said, Consider what I might say on a pastoral visit when entering the hospital room of one of my people. They look up from their bed with a smile and say, oh, Pastor John, how good of you to come. What an encouragement. And suppose I lift my hand as if it were to deflect the words and say matter-of-factly, don't mention it. That's my duty as a pastor. Now what is wrong here? Why do we cringe at such a thoughtless pastoral statement? It is my duty. And duty is a good thing. So why does that statement do so much damage? It damages because it does not honor the sick person. Why? Because delight confers more honor than duty does. Doing hospital visitation out of mere duty honors duty. Doing it out of delight honors the patients, and they feel that. The right pastoral response to the patient's greeting would have been, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad I could come. Do you see the paradox here? Those two sentences would show that I am seeking my own. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad I could come. And yet the reason these statements are not selfish is that they confer honor on the patient, not the pastor. When someone delights in you, you feel honored. When someone finds happiness in being around you, you feel treasured, appreciated, glorified. Visiting the sick because you are glad to be there is a loving thing to do. This then is the answer to why God is not unloving to magnify his glory. It is for our good that God is about his glory because they actually work beautifully in tandem. And so the terms of peace are simple. Give up your self-righteousness, turn from your sin, repent, and turn to your savior, accept the king who is coming. And we look back on that and know he came. What he did in marching into that city that would absolutely contribute what are the terms of peace on his end? What would it cost him? His life. That he would die for you in love. Saying, would you believe and follow him? Would you put your trust in him? Maybe you don't believe today. And I want to ask you in this moment to make a decision. Will you follow the king? Will you accept the terms of peace that the king has brought?
Because if you do not, you will face judgment. Will you believe he is gracious? He is loving. In great love, he came to die for you. This was the cost of our salvation, and he did it willingly and even joyfully. Even as tears flowed from his face, knowing what was to come, he faithfully marched on. He came into a city that would cast him out of the city and crucify him on a cross, bearing our sin so that we could be saved and he would rise, come from the dead as the first fruit that you and I too in faith could follow him out of death and into everlasting life to be with the king forever. And believer, as we approach Easter, I challenge you, will you be like your savior? Will you be like your king? And look out over the city and cry real tears that the wrath of God is coming. And these people need to know the king who can save them from the king who's coming. Will you share your faith? Let this gospel resound through this city. The king has come. He is the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. There is no one like him, so worship him and him alone. Live for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, your name is above every other name. And we know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you were Lord. And so God, would you give us compassionate hearts like your own, Jesus, to see the lost, to see what is to come, and let that actually move us, to move us like you to actually press into that. You didn't see that coming for the city and turn the other way and say, there's no hope here. Would you help us to do the same, to not lose hope, to not lose heart for those who are lost, but to press in and know that you are the king and we have the privilege of introducing this world to you. So help us to be good ambassadors, pleading on your behalf. Be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to God through this Christ, the anointed one, the true king. How would you help us? How we love you. Thank you so much that you love us to that degree that you would come and you would die. We give you the glory.